Gather together and come, assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 20. He was good at a sport. He was extremely focused on it. When he got saved, then Jesus started working on all those things and he made him realize like, hey, like your sports is not important. Your arm is not important. Who you thought you were is not important. Like you, he had to be humbled and brought down, brought down, flat out. Growing up Catholic, I wanted to get my own view from the Bible. So I made a decision that I was just going to read the Bible for myself and let it speak for itself. I, would, I didn't want anybody to tell me what it, what it meant or what it said. So I started reading it and God gave me a passion for it. I just remember there was some personal messages that went back and forth between me and him. And so I think I invited him a couple times and then we ended up finally him showing up. Steve invited him to his house to do the Bible studies. And with that, I think he learned how to do it. I think he learned a passion for doing it. I think he loved the way Steve did it because he was factual and kind of stated the Bible. I had never talked to Joe in person. And so I had the picture of Joe from senior in high school, probably the last time I seen him, that he was a USC football player. I knew that he was having a surgery and a shoulder issue. I'll never forget the first study he actually did show up. I, I didn't know who it was. It was like, this is not Joe McGuire. Are there any biblical characters or prophets or any stories in general that you feel like parallel Joe's? Job comes to mind right away. Job suffered terribly. Um, and while he was suffering, he had friends come and instead of comforting them, his friends made it worse on him and basically told him that God was doing this to punish him for something he did and that his kids deserve to die. And so I think there's that aspect of the physical pain and then the mental anguish too. And uh, I think with Joe, it's obvious from 17 surgeries, the physical part of it. But when I met him, he was in anguish. How does Job's story end in the Bible? Well, Job's story ends that God blesses him with more than he had before. He has more children and more money. And, but it's interesting, though, because Job's friends who had tormented him the whole time, God comes on the scene, corrects a little bit of what Job was saying, but then turns his attention to them and says, you better go to Job and ask him to pray for you, that I don't basically pour out my wrath on you. And Job, after all the terrible things he went through, after all the suffering he experienced, after the way his friends treated him, interceded for them with God and did pray for them. And uh, I can definitely see Joe in that too, as that heart for people to intercede for them and want them to know salvation and know Christ. I'm associate producer Morris Chestnut. Welcome to episode four of GFC Productions' presentation of Jesus and Big Joe. The tumbling blocks of the future Big Joe had envisioned so clearly were changed forever. That day in Pete Carroll's office, three surgeries into it with his right shoulder, after being told he would never take the field again as he watched his team win the national championship, Big Joe's football career came to an official end. I'm at a, a university, and, and I'm there with a bunch of kids that were really, really smart, 
had really good grades, either that or or really wealthy coming from like a really well-known family. <laughs> and and I wasn't either one of those. I, I didn't really feel like I, I fit in. But the one thing that, that I was really good at that I liked to do was, was party. I started getting into partying and I had some friends that probably weren't the best influences on me on that time and started using drugs and alcohol to try to fill that void that that football had left. Because of his history, USC replaced Joe's athletic scholarship with a medical one. So then I I started working in the weight room and I was always in the weight room. Within like a year, year and a half, I was stronger and in better shape than anybody on the football team. The roar of the 90,000 fans was replaced by the reflection in the mirror. The green grass and painted lines of the football field by the padded floors, plates, and racks of the weight room. Big Joe had christened his new hallowed ground. Started missing more and more school until the point where I just stopped going. Invisible and undetected, Big Joe McGuire, once one of the nation's most prized recruits and a surefire future millionaire, without so much as a phone call from a teacher's aide or an assistant coach, evaporated from the USC campus forever. And when he did, he sought refuge on his new hallowed ground. My life had just become all about the gym. I got a job as a personal trainer. Within a year, I had moved up and became the, the manager of the whole training department at the gym. And so I did that for a number of years. For me, my whole life was about going into that gym and and seeing how many pounds I could lift that day, how many millions of pounds I could lift each week. And, you know, I wanted literally to be the world's strongest man. You know, I was 310 pounds and 4% body fat, just humongous. Oh, my gosh. No, he was big. Like, he had a neck like this, you know, like, he was huge. Wouldn't want to meet him in a dark alley. Big Joe had become devout. And with every repetition, every set, he was worshiping his idol, praying that the next lift would be the one that would bury the anger and disappointment deeper and forever. I wanted nothing to do with God. I didn't believe that God existed. I didn't believe in an afterlife. You know, I thought it was just basically whatever happens here, you die and it's over. I used to be get really mad and I'd see Christians make me angry because they were happy and I was spending you know a lot of money every day trying to make myself feel decent and and they're walking around and happy and I'm like how could this be and I wanted that but I didn't think I could have that because I thought I I was too smart I had figured out that, that that there's no way that this could be true and I didn't think I could go back to to being duped into to believing that there was God and that the decisions I made here on earth made a difference and, and that there is an afterlife and all of that. And so I didn't think I had access to that because I, I thought I was too smart for that. I, I thought that they were all kind of dumb and you know, had bought this lie, but they were happy. And, and I wanted that happiness, but it just, I didn't think it was a reality for me. I had no
I look at all the crap I've put in my lungs for over the years. Smoked cigarettes for 40 years. Plus all the dope I've smoked. All the coke I smoked. All the speed I smoked. You know what I mean? Skip's condo was tucked at the far corner of a cul-de-sac backing up to a freeway in Garden Grove. He was a bit of a hoarder. A sign in the window of his beat-up old trailer read, Warning, contents of the trailer are known to be habit-forming. When we met, Skip's body was exacting revenge for years of past abuse. Even with the oxygen machine, his breathing was a laborious assignment, strained and requiring intense effort and focus. His frail shoulders led down to his rail-thin legs, which were attached to ankles and feet so severely swollen they could have passed for recent transplants from a man 300 pounds heavier. He passed away not long after we met. Some type of organ failure, Big Joe tells me. During the time we spent together, I quickly learned the thing about Skip was this. He wasn't one to let his physical ailments get in the way of a good story. Had they been boring... I might have stopped him. I've done more drugs than anybody I've ever seen in my life. Shortly after and that, when I got out of didn't juvenile him. hall, I, you know, I did like six months almost. I've done I went to drug. Los Pinos Forestry in Camp in the 70s. When I got out of there, I only shot heroin a couple of times. I wasn't really into it. I've had the mind but I've put genius, bro, for everything else my in life. my arm. You know, high IQ and mine just worked incredibly good, no matter what drug I was on. So me and him worked out together five days a week for probably a year and a half. He's got a very, very addictive personality. And so do I, so I guess that's why we clicked a little bit. I met him, he came into the gym and he got a membership for him and his son. And Skip was an unusual case because he didn't have a bank account or a credit card. He was a cash only type of guy. And so over the process of training him, we became friends. He liked how I was very forgiving. I wasn't judgmental on people. You know, I've seen a lot of stuff in my life. I had a crazy life. He had a chest like this. I mean, wide chest, arms. I don't know how many inches, 40s. You know, they're huge. Strongest man I've ever seen in my life. On the bench press, working out with the bench press, 350 pounds. And he had hit it 10 times when we were doing five sets. And I used to tell him, he'd like spot me, Skip. I'm like, dude, I can't even get that up. I go, quit doing it. I go, you're hurt, you're scaring me. Because if something happens, I go, I'm not going to be able to get that off you. And he used to tell me, dude, I'm going to help you with being scared. I'm like, you're crazy, dude. It was unreal, it was stupid, dangerous stupid. At the time we spoke, I was still wrapping my head around Big Joe's medical records. But I knew enough. And all I could think about as Skip discussed the bench press were the anchors that had been sewn into Big Joe's shoulder. He was huge. You know, big chest, big arms, very vain. Looked at himself a lot, flexed a lot to himself. He wasn't godly at all. Very wor worldly, very selfish. <laughs> and so we're, we're sitting there and, and, and getting stoned. And, but every now and then he would tell me something uh, about Jesus or, or kind of something about the Bible or that. And 
and he, he mentioned how, how Jesus was the, the strongest person who had ever lived. And I made the kind of smart remark saying, and I'm stronger than Jesus. Like, I, I could out-bench press Jesus. If Jesus was here, we could have a bench pressing contest, and, and I'd be able to bench press him. He was so angry in the beginning. He was angry about the circumstances of like what was happening to him. And he might not come out and tell you he's angry, but he was withdrawn, short, didn't really care about anything. Big Joe's withdrawal from his family wasn't only emotional. He left. He packed up and moved from Anaheim to Wrightwood, a town of about 4,500 people tucked deep in the San Gabriel Mountains. Wrightwood is about as disconnected from mainstream Southern California civilization as you can get. From a logistical standpoint, the move didn't make any sense. Wrightwood is on a mountain with no freeway access. Joe's commute to work went from 15 minutes to about an hour each way. Skip clarified the logic. When I met him, he was in the shooting heroin and whatever he could find. He was kind of what I say, a drug addict. And if you Dr. Andy Koop chaired the Department of Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of Maryland. When asked, he could think of one word that perfectly described the effect of opiates on the body. Diabolical. Opiates are unique because just like our naturally occurring endorphins, they fit perfectly into the receptor keyholes in our brains. But they don't just fit. Opiates flood and then overwhelm our receptors. The result is the intense high that's responsible for obliterating countless lives. Our bodies have the ability to break down and expel almost every drug, but not opiates. Once inside us, an opiate will resist being expelled, scraping the walls of our insides as our bodies try to flush it out. This is why it's an uphill battle to quit opiates like heroin, and only about 10% of addicts can ever permanently do it. He would go to the roof and shoot up dope. He'd go up to the roof and shoot his dope up and do whatever he's doing, smoke whatever he's smoking, and go back down and work out. They found a gang full of syringes and all kinds of paraphernalia, you know, from, from him. That's when I cried a lot and prayed a lot because I did not know it was happening, but I knew it wasn't good. Like I said, he wasn't really part of our lives, and that was what was scary. He had taken so many drugs for his pain, and then he became addicted to the drugs and changed him. And so I didn't really understand. I didn't really understand how he got from here to there, but I was angry about it. And I was broken and sad about it because I would like drive down the street and I would not know where my son was sleeping. And I would just think of him being homeless out there, or homeless, like, without a car, and what's happening to him, and how is he getting from here to there, and how is he feeding himself? Sometimes he's on heroin, sometimes he's on pharmaceuticals, and he's just getting slawed out too much. And it was concerning, very much. 
But he got in a pretty nasty car wreck. That helped open his eyes, too. I guess he rolled his car, wound up where it flipped upside down when he came out of it, and he was done. I don't think he's drove since then. See, this is where the hard part gets in. This is a hard lesson. That was one of the things where it's really painful for me, so I just kind of like, I tried not to be involved in it. I was really angry at Joe at that time, angry at him for being in that position, being in that, for breaking rules of life that I taught him, like this is not the way we live, right? This is not who we are, who you want to be. The supply of artificial chemical keys, the weights, the reflection in the mirror, none of it had brought Big Joe peace. Instead, his idols had only been digging deeper the pit where he would spend his coming days. Before I was a Christian, I, I was having a bad time, and, and I, I actually tried to kill myself. It didn't work. I took a syringe and filled it up with bleach and shot it in one of my veins. The charmed and easy tumbling blocks of Big Joe's life were long gone. The ones sown during this season were jagged, malignant, colorless, but ultimately not without purpose and hope. We went to Texas and uh, my mom got me a job with some dude who lived down the street from her and he was a brick mason, Ernest Williams, I'll never forget this dude. He started telling me about the Lord and after the third day I decided, you know, okay, I'll go. Wednesday, I'll go with you, and I'm going to hit the altar, I'm going to repent, I'm going to receive the Holy Ghost, and I'm going to get baptized. And sure enough, I felt it real strong, hit the altar, repented. But like I said, I knew when I first met Joe, I knew he was going to be a child of God. Skip, he's a rough guy. Like he, he was like walking down the same streets that Joe was headed down, and for him to tell him like, "Hey, dude, you aren't, you can do better than this, you know, and you need to um, turn your life over to God," that probably was huge. Well, when he was training me, and when he asked me, "Skip, you want to work out with me? Let's start working out together." That was my main clause. I said, "Fine, bro, but you have to get off heroin." You got to stop shooting up dope. I go, bro, I tell you the truth, I can't put in serious time with somebody that does. I just can't do it. You know, I've had too many years of being around it. And we were working out one day, hitting it hard. And I told him, I go, hey, bro, why don't you go back to God? Why don't you go back to him? This pot-smoking, coke-snorting, hoarding, jail sentence serving man, now a believer in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of the world, would wind up being one of three perfectly trimmed diamonds that make up one of the most important tumbling blocks in the quilt of Big Joe's life. I've known Skip for probably 15 years now, and God used him in a, a really unique way in my life. And, and I was at a place where I, I needed someone like Skip to, to introduce me to God. If the pastor at the church or that, you know, I wanted nothing to do with those people, you know, but, but God used Skip in a unique way to show me that, that you could have Jesus, that, that 
you know, Jesus is available, that he's awesome. I'm not taking credit for it. You can see, you can see I converted him because I'm the one that got him into it. No, no, I didn't convert him. God converted him. I'm not taking that credit. There's no way I'll take credit for that. It was a personal thing between him and God. But Big Joe's habits had sent him into a tailspin. He was out of work until a voice from the past reached out to offer a hand. I needed a job. Coach Drzanek called me up and was like, hey, um, we need a strength and conditioning coach, and, and I think you're the guy. And so I went there, and, and, and they hired me to be the, the strength and conditioning coach and the head of security. Big Joe was smack in the middle of a situation some may see as complete coincidence, others divine providence, threads with purpose slowly woven. So I'm working at a Catholic high school where I, eight or nine years earlier, had you know, denounced my faith in God completely. And I'm there, and I'm working with the, the head football coach, who's a Mormon. That's an atheist working for a Mormon at a Catholic high school. He wanted me to have a, an inspirational quote for the kids to read after they got done working out. One day I didn't have one, and so he's like, why don't you just use a Bible verse? But a realization hit. Oh, I don't have a Bible. I gave him his first Bible, matter of fact, he told me. He asked me for a Bible, and I said, yeah. You know, we're right here, smoking some pot, and I said, sure. And that was the start of it. And so he gave me that Bible. And for the next few months, every day, I would sit there and flip through that Bible and really just look for verses that sounded cool or profound. Or, But after a few months of doing that, it, it started kind of making sense to me. I started believing it. But it, but it, but it was more intellectual. It wasn't. It was never personal in my life. About a month later, I was. I got up one morning and and I was having a really rough morning. It was one of those where, you know, I was just I was probably hungover, and and just feeling like crap. And and I, and I remember I'm sitting there. I'm like, man, this sucks. Like, what is the point? Life is so hard. And then it just dawned on me. I, I remember I seeing it as clear as its day, like a like a like a video skip telling me, have you ever thought about giving your life back to God? And I just saw that. Like it was like a video playing in front of me and I'm like, give my life back to God. Give my life back. Yeah, that's what I need to do. I need to give my life back to God. Yeah, I'm going to give my life back to God. And, and, and then immediately, like I felt this burden lifted from me, you know, and, and I had this peace that I had never had before. But my life was a wreck at that time. You know, I was drinking a lot and partying and, and I had just became a Christian, but I, I didn't really know a whole lot about the Bible. I had never been to church. I had never talked to a pastor. I never had any kind of discipleship or pastoral care. Big Joe's vision was different from those of the past. It wasn't lucrative, not in the way a lot of us think of the word. What it offered was something his idols never had. Not a high, not fame, not money. What this vision offered was peace. But as we all know, in the real world, often peace only comes after wars. Skip, he was a seasoned veteran. I've had two serious cocaine addictions since I've been reborn. 
So don't think you're safe because you gave your life to God. Satan, as soon as you get baptized and you're saved, as soon as you're reborn and give your life to God, boom, a big target goes on your back for Satan. I was drinking a lot and partying and had a lot of sin going on in my life. And then all of a sudden I'd go out and I would do these things that I used to do. I'd go to the bars with my friends and and I felt guilty for it. Like I felt convicted. Like all of a sudden I'm like, man, I'm not Christian. Like I can't be doing this. Within the darkness, Big Joe had witnessed a flicker of light. But his idols would not be quick to free him from a pit that had taken years to dig. I was telling him, dude, I can see you're getting hurt when you're lifting. Stop hitting so much weight. You know, it's hurting you. Work out with my weight. I was begging him, man, stop it, bro. Stop hitting so much weight. I've seen it kind of pop out. He may have to put it back in like the guy at Lethal Weapon. I remember when I was about 24, 25, talking to a couple of doctors that, that went to the gym I was managing. And, and they're looking at my shoulder and they're like, dude, you need to put your arm in a sling and go straight to the doctor and, and get a shoulder replacement. And I'm like, no, I'm not gonna do that because I knew as soon as I did that, I wouldn't be able to do what I love to do. And then, catastrophe. I was having sex with this chick and I was on top of her and I went to push myself up and my arm popped out the back and it was just dangling there. And I couldn't pop it back in. It was just, I knew it was really bad. The next day I went to the hospital and they took x-rays, put it in a sling and scheduled me to see an orthopedic. And I went and saw him and it took you know, a month or two to come up with a plan on what to do with it because it was so just messed up. On the topic of suffering again, one thing that I think many churches don't talk about today is uh, a Christian is promised suffering. So what we hear in a lot of churches today is when you come to Christ, uh, your life's going to be great. He's going to bless you with money and food and comfort. Um, but Philippians chapter 1, I want to say it's like verse 28 or somewhere around there. It says two things have been granted for, to you. One is to have faith in Jesus Christ and one is to suffer for him. And the Bible consistently talks about how God uses suffering to mold and shape his people into the people he wants them to be. And there's two different types of suffering. There's the suffering that's sanctifying you, um, that you're not being disciplined. It's just God using it to mold you. And then there's also disciplinary suffering as well, because God, it says that God is our father. And as a father, he will discipline his children if they get out of line. I know it's a lot to take in, but what's your first reaction? My first reaction is I knew he had this many surgeries um, because he's told me. But when you see it in a list, it, it's just like, how does a person go through this? Then I just think, too, I mean, what are these doctors doing? Have you ever seen your own medical records? Um, some of them, probably. Do you have any desire to? Um, not really. Next week on Episode 5 of GFC Productions' presentation of Jesus and Big Joe. I think it would be good. I think it might, that would even give closure too for us, you know, to understand it because that ambiguity kind of just like leaves it out there. Patients like this 
their whole life gets focused on this shoulder. And they spend most of their time in and out of the hospital, recuperating from surgery, getting antibiotic treatment, being strung out on drugs. That's how we're all connected. We really are truly a machine. You know, now we're measuring, we're bending, just like bending rebar. And as I kind of alluded to, like a Home Depot screw, well, we have whole trays of things. Because on one hand, the Bible tells us that God is the judge and God says he is the one who's going to carry out justice because in the end, all crimes are violations against God. Jesus and Big Joe is brought to you by GFC Productions. For updates, behind-the-scenes content, and special offers, follow GFC Productions on Facebook and Instagram at at Jesus and Big Joe and on Twitter at at Jesus and Big Joe. I'm Morris Chestnut, the associate producer. The producer and writer is Kyle Hogan. Be sure to subscribe to Jesus and Big Joe on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts. Become eligible for giveaways of exclusive merchandise like gear signed by me, associate producer Morris Chestnut, by leaving a review of Jesus and Big Joe on one of the podcast platforms and emailing a screenshot of it to gfcpromotions at protonmail.com. Only reviews left within three weeks of the original launch date are eligible. The score for Jesus and Big Joe is performed by Aaron Hill. All I Have is Christ, originally written by Jordan Coughlin. Copyright 2008. Sovereign Grace Praise BMI. Sovereign Grace Music is a division of Sovereign Grace Churches. All rights reserved. The song was used by permission. Administrated worldwide at www.capitalcmgpublishing.com. Excluding the UK, which is administrated by Integrity Music, part of the David C. Cook family. You can visit Sovereign Grace Music at www.sovereigngracemusic.com. Audio editing, mixing, and mastering was done by Resonate Recordings. Visit GFC Productions' website at www.gfclife.com and subscribe to their email list for updates, information, discounts, deals, and more. A special thank you to Calvary Chapel, Sovereign Grace Music, the McGuire family, and everyone who made it possible to tell the story of Jesus and Big Joe.